Jonah chapter 4. In my Bible, it's entitled, Jonah's Anger at the Lord's Compassion. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which where there were more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? I look forward to what Scott has to say. For some reason that I <clears throat> couldn't fully understand, although I believe it was from the Holy Spirit, I developed an overwhelming burden to visit the distant continent of Australia. Now, the man who wrote those words, uh, well, he did exactly that. Uh, he came to Australia to proclaim the gospel of Jesus for three months from uh, February to uh, May in 1959. Uh, Billy Graham preached the gospel throughout Australia. Uh, the gospel about God being the creator, about man the sinner, and about Jesus the saviour. Now, I, I was not actually alive in 1959, but uh, they tell me that for many months uh, in advance uh, that Christians around Australia were, were, were galvanised, uh, galvanised in, in praying to God, praying for this country and praying uh, for, their, uh, for their friends. And uh, they were preparing in order to invite their friends to, to come and to hear the gospel. And many did. Hundreds of thousands, in fact, did. Um, Billy Graham uh, preached the gospel many times uh, during that uh, three-month period. I think it was once or twice a day he was preaching the gospel for that length of time. But here's a few statistics. 130,000 people packed into the Melbourne cricket ground to hear the gospel of Jesus. Uh, that is still the record uh, attendance for the MCG for any event. 150,000 packed into the combined uh, Sydney Cricket Ground, Sydney Showground event 
to hear the gospel with uh, about a million people listening to that um, sermon, uh, not online, but uh, on radio and via what they called landline uh, in churches and community halls all across Australia. The Sydney Morning Herald uh, described the meeting in Sydney as, and I quote, one of the most remarkable religious phenomenon ever experienced in this city. And I think to myself, one of the most? <laughs> That'd have to be the most, wouldn't it? That would have to be the most. 130,000 people say that they made a commitment to Christ in those three months, uh, which at the time, in 1959, was 2% of the entire Australian population. Um, I don't know if anyone here was converted during that time, um, but I certainly know people who were, and they're still living for Jesus. How wonderful. How amazing. How much we'd love to see that sort of thing happening again. And now imagine someone in 1959 saying that this is all dreadful, that this is one of the worst things that has ever happened in Australia. Now, an atheist might say that, but what if the person was a, was a church leader? Uh, what if they were a minister of the congregation and uh, they've seen what's happened and now they're angry? They're offended that all of these non-religious people, these people whose lifestyle they've been preaching against Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and now look what's happened. It's appalling. They've turned to God, been born again, and they might even turn up at my church. <laughs> How dreadful. Imagine that. Now, the good news is that I'm actually not aware of anyone who reacted that way in 1959, although it's possible that someone did. But you know someone who once was like that? The prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah. I mean, Billy Graham was called to, uh, to visit the, the distant continent of Australia. <laughs> uh, how do you feel being described that way? Uh, but Jonah was called by God to visit the distant city of Nineveh, um, which is in modern-day Iraq. But we know what happened, don't we? That instead of going to Nineveh, he turned the other way and he got on a ship and he headed... Uh, in the complete opposite direction to a place called Tarshish in Spain. Why would he do that? Well, why would a prophet of God, why would Jonah's pro uh, Jonah the prophet be so disobedient to God? Well, um, today uh, in the first couple of verses of Jonah chapter 4, we finally have the answer in Jonah's own words. Uh, and you might want to open that up in your Bibles and you can follow the outline of the talk and your um, sermon outlines there. Uh, but to understand uh, why he behaved that way, we need to check out uh, the very last verse of Jonah chapter 3, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Because we know that eventually Jonah did go to Nineveh and he did preach uh, God's word, God's warning to the Ninevites, his God's warning of judgment, And what happened? Do you remember? How did the Ninevites react to the preaching of God's word? Was it like Australia in 1959? Did lots of people turn to God? Yes. 
They did. They did, in fact. 120,000 plus people in that city. Uh, by the ancient world standards, that was a huge population. They listened, they believed, and they repented. And so what did God do? Well, what does God always do when people listen, believe, and repent? He forgave. He withdrew his hand of judgment upon them. And as Jesus in Luke chapter 12 tells us that those Ninevites, they now belong to God's people. They'll be there on the day of judgment judging those religious leaders in Israel who didn't repent. How wonderful. How amazing. And how much the exact opposite to what Jonah wanted. <laughs> Check out verses 1 and 2 of our passage today. Uh, having um, known that God has withdrawn his judgment on Nineveh because they repented, we're told that Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is, why I this is exactly what I tried to forestall, forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Because I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding in love, that you are a God who relents from sending calamity. That's why I fled. Because I knew that you would do that. I knew your character. You see, the, the fact that Jonah had fled from obeying God's command, well, that's a little bit um, surprising to us. But when we hear the reason why he fled, that's not surprising. That's shocking. That's terrible. Jonah knew the character of God. He knew that God is gracious, that God is compassionate, that God is slow to anger, that God is abounding in love. And so by running away, what was he trying to do? He was trying to stop God from being God. <laughs> he was trying to stop God from expressing the very character of God. Um, reflect back to chapter 2. In chapter 2, Jonah praised God for saving him from drowning, um, even though he had not repented. You know, remember, he was swallowed by the whale. That was actually the salvation. He was saved from from, uh, from drowning by the miraculous uh, provision of a whale in whose body he could survive. And he praised God for saving him, even though he had not yet repented. And yet these Ninevites, who have repented, well, he can't stomach that. He can't stand the fact that God would save these people who had repented, unlike him. And I, and I guess it's what we see here is that it's one thing uh, to be like Jonah in terms of knowing the character of God, but that's not the same as allowing God's grace and his compassion and his love to actually become our character so that it, it actually reshapes our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of the world and our 
attitude towards other people. Jonah is glad that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, so long as it's towards Israel. But as for other people, well, in verse 3, he would rather be dead than, have, than, than to see these Ninevites saved. He'd rather be dead. And when in uh, verse 4, uh, God questions Jonah's right to be angry for saving the Ninevites, what does he say? He's got nothing to say, has he? God says, do you have any right to be angry that I've done this? And Jonah just walks away. Doesn't give any answer. He's got nothing to say. Now, I don't know if you notice this or not, but uh, throughout this book, <clears throat> we see that Jonah doesn't seem to have a particularly high view of life. I mean, I'm talking about his own life. Uh, <clears throat> because um, three times in the book, uh, he would actually rather die. You know, the first time back in chapter one, remember there's a storm at sea and they, he could have repented, but he, he told the sailors if they want to stop the storm, just throw him overboard so that he drowns. Right? That's not a particularly high view of his own life. Uh, and then here in chapter two, he'd, he'd rather die um, because these Ninevites have now repented and been saved. And the third time is in this very, very strange event which happens next. Um, you see... What was God's message to Nineveh? Um, in chapter 3, we saw that the message was pretty simple. Uh, in 40 days, the city would be overturned, destroyed. That was God's message. Now, is that still going to happen? No. And Jonah knows that. And so, what does he do? Now that God has told him that they've repented... He's not going to judge them. Uh, what's the natural thing for Jonah to do? Does he, does he pack up his knapsack and uh, head on back home to Israel? Well, check out verse 5. Rather than do that, what he does is he goes and he, he went a safe distance out of the city. He found a nice spot with a, uh, with a good view over Nineveh. He made himself a, sh a shelter, presumably out of sticks, you know, like the shelters you sometimes see down the beach after there's been lots of flooding and all that sort of thing. And he set up his deck chair and he waited and he watched to see what would happen to the city. Why? What's he hoping for? Is he hoping for the best? No, he's hoping for the worst. He's hoping that maybe that their repentance would prove to be fake and that um, God would indeed turn Nineveh to, to smoke and ash just like Sodom and Gomorrah and he'd get a pretty good view of it. That's the hope that he's clinging to. Like a petulant child. Like a petulant child. And, you know, just as Jonah has a good view of the city, um, this actually gives us a good view of his selfish character as opposed to God's. Now, I remember uh, one time when I was working for this chemical company and uh, <clears throat> I um, spoke to my boss one day and I said to him, listen, 
do you think there's any chance that you might be able to do something to improve the working conditions in our office here? I said to him, like, carpet on the floor would be nice. And you may have heard the answer that he gave to me in your own context, because he looked at me and he said, Scott, don't hold your breath waiting. <laughs> don't hold your breath waiting. I think that would have been good advice for Jonah, because the destruction of Nineveh, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And the shelter that he made... Well, if he's going to be hanging around for a long time waiting for something that's not going to happen, that shelter is not particularly sufficient. He's going to be waiting a long time. And so from verse 6 onwards, uh, Jonah's focus shifts away from Nineveh's fate and he's focused entirely on his own personal comfort. Uh, let me read to you from verse 6 to 8. The Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said it would better be better for me to die than to live. Have you ever met someone as stubborn as Jonah? I mean, he's going to stay there, whatever it takes, until he sees Nineveh burn, but the only person who's burning is him, his sunburn on his head. And just as God miraculously used a whale, here he miraculously uses a a rather fast-growing vine and a very hungry worm and a very strong wind. Why does he do this? Well, it's to expose Jonah's view of life, that it's all about him. It's all about him. And so now God asks Jonah again, about his anger. First time he asked him about his anger was, you know, have you got any right to be angry that, you know, I saved these Ninevites? Second time in verse 9, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And how did Jonah respond? It is. It is, he said. It's absolutely right for me to be angry with what you've done. In fact, I'm so angry I should, I'd rather be dead. That's about the vine withering. <laughs> well, in verse 10, did Jonah plant the vine? Did Jonah cause the vine to grow? Does the vine belong to him? Does it even matter? <laughs> Well, of course not. How much more does God have the right to be concerned for the lives of 120,000 people who he did make, who he does own, and who have returned to him? You see, uh, whilst... Jonah is passionately concerned about his sunburn. 
God is passionately concerned for the lost. The Ninevites, who he describes as not knowing their right hand from the left hand, they, they, they don't have the revelation of God. They're like sheep that have gone astray. And God is so concerned about the lost that he sent his own son. That's why he sent Jesus. You see, in one sense, Jonah was right. The Ninevites were evil. The Ninevites did deserve judgment. But what Jonah was hoping for, the punishment of Nineveh, actually happened on the cross of Jesus. When, because of God's character, because of his compassion, his mercy, his love, Jesus took the punishment that they deserved for their sin, which we deserve for our sin, as he died on the cross. Now, a couple I know, an elderly couple, uh, several decades ago, their son deserted them, um, walked out, cut them off, didn't want to know them, ever. But they love their son, have a great deal of compassion for their son, and they never gave up on their son. Uh, in fact, just recently, he actually returned to them. He was in great need. They found out they were able to help him. And now the relationship is restored. It's back to what it should have been all along. And, you know, words can simply not express um, their joy, their profound sense of gratitude and happiness. But in their 80s, what they longed for for half their lives has now happened. Restored relationship with someone they love. That's great news, isn't it? That's terrific news. In Luke chapter 15, um, some religious leaders, Jonah types, couldn't stand the fact that Jesus had love and compassion and wanted to hang around with people who they thought were less righteous than they were. People who they described as being sinners and tax collectors. Uh, they couldn't stand the fact that Jesus would spend time with them. And so Jesus told them um, parables about a, about a a man who'd lost his, uh, who had lost one sheep, about a, a woman who had lost one coin, about a father who had lost one son, and how they went out to try to find the, the sheep and the, and the, and the coin, and, and the son returned, and, and how there was so much rejoicing uh, when they did find the sheep, the coin, and the son came back. The father threw a party, threw a banquet to rejoice in the fact that his son had returned. Jesus' point? Well, it's that 
when just one person turns back to God, no matter who they are, no matter how they've lived their lives, no matter how sinful, uh, how rebellious, how, 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 even how wicked that they've been, that when they return to God, the whole of heaven erupts with joy. And the angels in heaven sing praises and rejoice that one person has been saved. Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's God's purpose. That's God's plan. That's God's character. Friends, as the book of Jonah ends, um, right at the end of chapter 4, verse 10, you may notice that we're not actually finally, we're not actually told how Jonah finally responded, are we? It just ends by the Lord saying that, you know, don't I have the right to be compassionate on these 120,000 people plus their animals? And then the book ends. We don't, we're not told how Jonah finally responds. And maybe it's because Jonah's response is not what matters. It's our response that matters. The book is written for us, for the readers and the hearers of this message. Now, Jonah understood. He understood in his head God's grace. I mean, um, back in chapter 2, verse 8, when he'd been rescued from drowning by the whale and he's in, actually inside the belly of the whale and he prays, uh, listen to what, some of what he said to God. And I quote, he said in chapter 2, verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Could be theirs, except Jonah doesn't want them to know about it. <laughs> And if they did know about it, he doesn't want to ex them to accept it. Now, you and I, we may have a, be people who have, a, have a, a clear understanding of God's grace in Jesus. And, and unlike Noah, um, we might be people who wholeheartedly agree that non-Christians need to hear the gospel so that they can be saved. We agree to that, but in the busyness of life and in the stresses and the, and the comforts of this life, we might agree to that, but we actually lose our compassion for the lost. Our compassion is what fades. We might have it solidly all tied up in our heads, but not so much in our hearts. We don't want to be like a Jonah, do we? So, you know, what, what do we need to do about that? Uh, well, it seems that um, we can start by reflecting on just how gracious and how merciful and how loving God has been to us. Think about what life would be like for you uh, if you were not forgiven. Think about it, what life was like for you before you were forgiven. 
And think about the cost that God has paid for your forgiveness by sending Jesus to die for you. And when we not only think about it, but we reflect on that, honestly, that actually ought to be enough for us to want to share that with others, shouldn't it? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, uh, in one, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. We need to reflect on our own experience on God's grace towards us as the primary reason why we'd want to share that grace with others. And um, we need to be people who acknowledge that this is not our work, that we are, this is God's work, that he alone can change people's hearts. <laughs> you know, was it the preaching of Jonah that changed the hearts of the Ninevites? Was it Jonah's faith that, no, no, he didn't even want them to repent. This was a work of God, and it always is by his spirit that God works in people's hearts, and so therefore we need to be people who pray, to pray. And to, to think um, about people you know who don't know the Lord and to pray specifically for them, that God would open up their hearts so that you might even have an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. And we should be praying for um, others who are, who are doing that work in different ways. Um, people, other people in our church. Um, pray for our school scripture teachers. There's a small team of scripture teachers in our church here, a broader team throughout the town, who go into the schools of Port Macquarie and speaking God's word, teaching God's word to over a thousand students every week, many who, who would not otherwise know the Lord. Why don't we pray for them? Pray for that work. And why not, how about this for radical thinking, how about considering becoming one of them? Um, actually joining that team. I would love to talk to you about that. I'd love to talk to you about that. And do you know what? What's, happening, what's coming up in four weeks' time? It's Easter, isn't it? It's Easter. And at Easter time, that's when our, our society kind of gives us sort of their permission to talk about the death of Jesus on Good Friday and the resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. We get public holidays even to do that. And there's a lot of people who come to church, particularly on Good Friday, who don't normally come to church, but they suspect that there might be some reason, some meaning, some significance in the fact that Jesus died on the cross. So why not come along to the church and find out about that? And I've got to be honest, when I hear that there's people in our church who deliberately don't come to church on Good Friday because they're going to come again on Sunday, I'm thinking that's a lost opportunity to actually meet some of these people, to talk to them, to encourage them. In fact, why not go one step forward and further and, and invite a friend to the Good Friday service? Now, um, many of us might feel a bit nervous about that. But you know what? Sometimes people are more willing to accept an invitation than we are to give it. And just by inviting someone, 
regardless of whether they come or not, we can open up the topic of Jesus. Open up that topic of Jesus. The one who God sent into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. The one who came to seek and to save the lost. Is that your heart? Do you have the character, the compassion that God has for those who he wants to hear the message of forgiveness? Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this intriguing book of Jonah and uh, the way that... um, uh, the, the negativity of Jonah's behaviour is actually a real challenge and encouragement to us to be more like you and to be more like your son, Jesus. Father, we pray that we would have such an um, understanding of, what you, of, of, of your love and what you've done for us in sending your own son and, and forgiving us of our sin, that that would shape our whole attitude towards life and towards other people. And we pray, Father, that rather than fleeing from being part of your work, that um, you would open up opportunities for us to share the gospel of Jesus and that you would bring more people into that saving relationship with yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.